Uh, again, we're in First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that as we um, study this passage of scripture, Lord, that we would hear a word from you, that you would uh, encourage us from this passage. Father, I pray that you would draw us close to yourself. Lord, help us to have clarity of who you are, who we are, and and how um, our relationship with you and with each other is supposed to work. I pray that you would, uh, Lord, help us to become and to be um, the people that you desire us to be. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. First Peter verse chapter 5, verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And Father, we do thank you, Lord. Um, Lord, that last verse just really captures my heart that we can and we are instructed to and you desire us uh, to cast our anxiety um, upon you because you care for us. And Father, we pray that you would help us um, just today, Lord, to come into to, to a better understanding of, of what that reality uh, means and how it affects the way we live, Lord, knowing that you care for us. We thank you, Lord, that you do care for us, and we pray that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. This, this section has been one of these, you know, P- Peter is, is, a, is one of these letters um, that as you read through this letter, it's clear that there was major suffering and persecution happening amongst them. Uh, this is modern day Turkey. Um, as Peter wrote from Rome, Nero was on the throne and Nero was this wicked, evil, ruthless man who basically wreaked havoc on the known world during that time. The Christians were often the, the, the brunt of his force. Uh, we know that when he had his extravagant, extravagant parties, he, uh, this was before electricity, so he would uh, strap living Christians to the, the post, uh, set them on fire to light his parties. Um, he would s- throw Christians um, into the Colosseums for sport to see them devoured by lions. And it was a, 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 a trying and difficult time, to say the least, uh, concerning the persecution that they were facing. And in the midst of this, Peter has given some very um, difficult, not to understand, but to apply instructions uh, to Christians um, to, to subject themselves to the authorities that have been appointed over them, to subject themselves to their masters if they were slaves, uh, to subject themselves, I would continue in modern day, that, that, that an employee to their employer, to subject yourselves in the context of marriage. Uh, just a few weeks ago, he he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal amongst you, which is happening for your testing. Um, 
through this last week, we looked at the call of the elder or pastors of the church, how they were to, to lead in the midst of this suffering, how they were to shepherd uh, the people of God as they were enduring their own suffering, and then how to comfort those who are going through great trials. An immensely practical book of the Bible. Um, and now we come to this section where there's this, gr- this great hope. Weeks ago, it just jumped out at me as I've been reading through this letter. This verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And, and if you could leave here today with just one thought, if you don't remember anything that I say, if you could walk away knowing that God cares for you, that can have a, a tremendous impact in your life and how you um, view things, how you handle things, how you handle the stresses of life. But as we get to there, We'll start in verse five. Um, the first previous, ver- the four previous verses, we, we, he just given the command to the elders, to the pastors, to the shepherds of the church, how they are to uh, shepherd the flock of God amongst themselves, how they're to exercise um, oversight over the church and leading, caring for individuals, yet leading the church at the same time, and then to prove to be examples of the flock. Peter. He then turns his attention to the young men and he says to the young men, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. I don't know if I want to, how much I wrestled with how much time to sort of linger over this. I, um, I want to cover it briefly and I don't want to necessarily make a big point of it, but he just come over out of the instruction of, of calling the pastors to lead in a certain way. Now, Younger men, there's no age given. In my mind, I have sort of the the 14 to 25-year-old uh, male is, is who comes to my mind. And he tells these younger men to subject yourselves. This is a, a Greek word, a hupotasso, which means to basically uh, to allow yourself to fall under the the, the infrastructure or the ranking, not, not ranking system is a bad time, but to basically order yourself under sort of an institution that has been established by God. And being a formerly young man with a lot of zeal and one as an older man now, I have a very difficult time in my own life with the, the 18 to 22 year old male um, can provoke me in certain ways. And I think it's because of the four and a half years I spent as a Navy SEAL instructor that this was the demographic that I, um, I, I was called to basically to instruct, to shape, to mold, to weed out. And so I find that even today, like I don't care if they're like Mormon missionary kids or they're anybody that comes up, my fuse gets like really short in this window because this is the window where you know everything. You, you've got everything figured out. You I mean, when I was that age, it's like, man, that guy is so messed up with what he's doing. If I was in charge, I would do it this way, and it'd be so much better. And I think that this is common. I mean, I think that the, you know, the young man that's, that's, that's gifted and called to, to, to serve in a certain capacity, it's difficult to sort of like bench yourself and to humble yourself and to learn from wisdom. And so Peter tells these younger ones, you know, uh, Submit yourself to the elders. Don't. It's not fun being the leader. It's not. 
It's a difficult, strenuous thing to be the elder of a church, sort of leading the church. And so you young men, while you're, you're zealous and eager to participate in this sort of function, do it in a way where you're submitting to the leadership and not making their job miserable. Um, the other thought of this sort of wrapping up with the previous section, my whole life uh, going to church, Church was always something that it was an hour that I had to suck up on Sundays. It was torture. It was misery. Um, you might be feeling that today. I'm sorry if you are. I, I relate. But it was like something that you went, you endured, and then you basically left and you, you basically went on with your life. And the more that I study the New Testament and the, the, well, really the whole of the scriptures, that God has has created the church, this institution, and it's it, it really is a living, active sort of organization that's designed to fulfill certain things, namely the, the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. He's placed a certain structure within this organization to help lead the body of Christ so that they could fulfill this. We've seen previously in 1 Peter 4.10, just a couple weeks ago, it says that each, as each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That if you're a Christian, the Bible says clearly that you've been given a spiritual gift to put to use within the body of Christ. You are absolutely needed within the local body of Christ, that you have a gift, to, you need to use it. He's placed a, a structure, that God's placed a structure, that, that there, there are pastors or elders sort of leading, that this is really a, a team sport, and we need one another, we need to be involved. And in the midst of this, the humility of spirit is so critical. Um, we so often think that our ideas are the best ideas, or that... Um, that our our way or the highway. Um, in this next two verses, this word humility or humble, be humble comes up three times. So shifting from the young men, he shifts to everybody, all of you, y'all, all of you in the church, all who are Christians, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And so there's this call of, of bringing humility to the table that as you're serving, as you're getting involved, as you're becoming a part of the local church, you're to do this with, with meekness or hum, humility, kind of viewing others um, higher than yourself. This word clothe is an interesting word. It's literally like a verb of dealing with this action of taking a garment and and placing it around your waist, tying it into a knot, and it was to serve a function. I sort of think of, um, you know, we're getting, November's right around the corner, Thanksgiving's coming. Thanksgiving is sort of like the Super Bowl of meals. I love Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving is one of these times, I think it's the around the, well, at least our nation, I don't know about the world, where I think there are many men that normally aren't involved in the kitchen suddenly find themselves decked out with the apron around themselves, you know, slicing, dicing, peeling, doing whatever you're supposed to do to, to help out in the greater picture. I'm seeing a lot of wives look at their husbands now. Didn't mean to get anybody in trouble. 
but, but sort of you don that apron and suddenly it's, it's geared for a specific task. You're now called into action to do something. And this is this picture of clothing yourselves. And, he's, and Peter uses this word, clothe yourselves with humility. And I can't help but to think of the night in which Jesus was betrayed. If you would turn with me back to John chapter 13. John, John's gospel is very different than the other gospels. He follows sort of a different outline. The fascinating thing about John or his gospel is of the 21 chapters, five of these chapters are dedicated to the Lord's Supper, like the very last night that Jesus spent with his disciples. And in this evening, it was sort of started as they gathered with Jesus washing the apostles' feet. Um, During this story, he's going to take off his outer garments and he's going to put on a, a towel, a robe that was for the task of washing the feet. It's the same idea of, of that Peter writes about clothing yourself with humility. And Jesus is the one who gave Peter this, this image of clothing yourself with humility. Now in John chapter 13, verse one, we'll read the story here to sort of get a glimpse of what may have been on Peter's mind as he wrote this. It says, now therefore, now before the feast, the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. There's that, that word clothing. He girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. So he came to Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And I want to pause here. This is feet washing is not something that we do in our culture. Most of us wear shoes and we have concrete and we sort of leave sort of hygiene onto your own. That's up to you how you deal with your hygiene. Um, but, but there, as they had sandals and they walked, there was, there was basically filth. When they came to a, a meal, they weren't sitting necessarily on a table with chairs where their feet were not near everybody else. They were, they were sort of reclined at the table and their feet would be more exposed. And so... Their feet needed to be washed as they entered um, uh, for this sort of setting. But the person who would normally wash the person would be, of, of the servants in the house, it would be the lowest ranking man, the junior person would be responsible for the foot washing. And in our context, I don't think we get the sort of the humility that's involved with, with washing somebody's feet. The closest thing that I've sort of come up with in my mind in in doing a number of hospital visits um there always is that time when you can kind of see the bedpan sort of filling up and it's like man what do we do with that like what do we and and a nurse will come in and will basically take the bedpan and empty it and reset everything and 
It's not a pleasant job. It's not anything that any of us would really want to do. But it's the closest thing that I can sort of relate to in a modern day sense that would be equivalent to what was happening with the feet washing. That this would be the the, the love, the humility of basically changing the bedpan of somebody. Um, not a pleasant job, but is a total act of of sacrificial sort of love. And as Jesus is doing this, he's washing the, the, the feet of the apostles and he comes to Peter, who is the author of the letter that we're looking at today. And I love Peter's sort of reaction. I, I love Peter through the New Testament. He had such great pride, such zeal, such bold, outspoken statements only to see how he didn't follow through. And so Peter says, you're not, you can't wash my feet. Like it's like you're our Messiah. You, this is not right for you to do this. And Jesus basically says, listen, unless I, unless I wash your feet, unless you participate in this, there's re- like you're, you're, there's not a place for you. There, this, you're going to miss out. And then Peter and his zeal says, okay, not just my feet then. I want you to wash everything, my whole body. Take everything, Jesus. And Jesus basically, in verse 10, kind of says, now, now, Peter, why don't you just humble yourself and do what I say and get along with the program? That's my translation. And in verse 12, Jesus continues. So when he had finished washing their feet and taking his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Continuing on into the Lord's Supper, we'll come to verse 34 and 35, where Jesus looks at them and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so as Jesus is concluding his earthly ministry, as he's giving his last night of instruction to these guys, before he would go to the cross and be crucified. The message that he hammers home is, guys, the whole economy of following me is backwards. You're not number one. I am the creator and sustainer of the universe. And I humbled myself and I washed your feet or changed your bedpan is not what I said. But in my mind, it's like I humbled myself and I did this lowly task and you're not greater than your master and you need to live your life this way where you humble yourselves, where you serve one another, where you love each other, where you have a humble spirit. And if you live this way, which is different than the world's economy, the world will know that there's something different about you. As we work our way back to first Peter, I want you to stop. If you can go to Philippians chapter two, And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul gives the same message 
of humility and the follower of Christ. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if, and the word if, in the Greek there are four um, there are four conditional clauses that all translate in the if in the English. Um, without with sparing you the Greek le- lesson, this word if could be translated since. It's, it's if and it's in the positive. It's not literally if there is encouragement, there is encouragement. Therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ, you could read. Since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, and um, and if any affliction, I ruined in the English, but you get the impression, the idea here. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then where he's going to go is that Jesus, being God, came to earth as a man that he lived this life in humility. And ultimately, knowing no sin... He went to the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins so that we might have relationship with God. And he says, this humility that was manifested, displayed, showed to us in Christ Jesus, this is the attitude who we, his followers, need to have. And so now we come back to 1 Peter. These men were affected by Jesus as we all should be. And this idea of humility just sort of, it's a priority for those who follow Christ. Therefore, or excuse me, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He, he ends here, or not ends, as he gives this instruction to humble ourselves with one another, he validates it through quoting Old Testament scripture. And what he does here, he says, you know, in Proverbs 3.34, it says that God opposes the proud. If this is true, then we who follow after God, we should humble ourselves because there it says, God gives grace to the humble. And if you're going there, I see some pages going back. It's not going to be word for word because Peter is quoting from the Septuagint, the, the, Greek, um, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And we have the actual Hebrew Bible uh, translated into English. Um, that was just free of charge. Um, <clears throat> so he says, if this is true, that God opposes the proud, if God doesn't like pride and what God wants is humility and as You have a humble spirit. God gives grace to you. If this is true, he says, therefore, as a result of this, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
this has been one of those things right away. I just sort of in my mind, you know, this whole phrase that he might exalt you at the proper time. I just sort of like move that to the side. I don't dwell there very long because the last thing I need to do is to start going, oh, if I start doing this, I'm going to start doing this. I'm doing this for like a, 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 a reason that I'm going to be elevated and my pride sort of takes over. And so clearly he says that living this way, that there will be a reward, that as you humble yourself, God will take care of you. God will elevate you and whatever it looks like. I, I don't really need that in my own mind, quite frankly, because um, it'll be a trap for me to get into trouble. But he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And, and as I think about this, what does this mean? Like, what does it mean to humble yourself before this, this mighty hand of God? And as I've been reflecting on all of Peter, I, I think part of this idea of humbling yourself before God is sort of recognizing that God's economy, God's ways are far different than my own ways. They're far different than how I would choose to live my life. When I choose to follow after God, it sort of cuts against the grain of my heart. It goes against my instinct, my natural reaction. Looking at Peter already, he said, um, let's see if I can find it really quick here. Um, in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every in- human institution. So Peter says, as you're submitting yourself for the Lord's sake, it's going to come out in the idea of how you subject yourselves with the authorities that have been placed over you. It's going to come out in your workplace environment to your bosses, your slave owners, in your marriages, how you interact along your marriages as you interact with one another. In your finances, everything that you do, every, every aspect of your life where God gives this command to live this way. Every time I've been challenged by God to, to step out in an area, it goes against what my fleshly response would be. This week, we, um, Monday and Tuesday, Ben and I, we went on a, the, the, our denomination has a pastor's conference up in the, the lovely city of Fresno, California. And uh, my father-in-law came with us, and on the way back, it, it is, um, it's really not a wise idea to have three pastors in a car. Um, and on the way back, we're like talking, rehashing everything. I was supposed to be the navigator. And in the midst of, of the conversation, like we were, de- we were solving some of the world's greatest problems, I like started noticing, I'm like the GPS at every exit, it's saying exit, exit, exit. I'm like, hey guys, we need to exit. Like we missed a turn every, like for the last three, it keeps saying get off. And then my father-in-law who's in the back seat, he says, just keep on going. This is going to tie right into the 15. We're good. Okay. So we engage in our conversation. Another 45 minutes to an hour goes by and I'm noticing that it just wants, the GPS desperately wants us to go to the right. I say, Ben, I don't know, man. I I really think we might consider getting off here. And my father-in-law is like, just keep going. I'm like, are you sure we're on the 215? So I'm like, right as I'm watching the signs. And then as he realizes on his phone, I see the sign that says 10 East. Exactly. And he's like, guys, we're we're almost to Palm Springs. (laughs) And I'm like, you're the one who... And he's like, why do you guys listen to me for the back seat? I'm like, dude, this Sunday I got to preach on submitting to your elders. And so he's like, don't God calling me your elder. I'm like, you're my father. 
And so, the, oh, this has no point to with anything. I, uh, <laughs> but one of the things that sort of came up in the, in the conference was this pastor, he, um, it really resonated with me. He, he was talking about the idea of how he had planted this church, how God had, um, as God over the course of his life, had, had called him to do certain things, to sort of walk by faith. W- what he said was pretty obvious, but I never viewed it. Because we talk about walking by faith in sort of super comfortable terms. Um, that it's like the spiritually the right thing to say, oh, I'm walking by faith and it does, it seems easy. But, but, but what he said was this idea that if you're walking by faith, you're sort of on this tightrope and the nature of saying that you're walking by faith means that there's risk, that there could be failure, there could be hardship, there could be heartache. And so walking this, this rope of faith, this following after God, submitting to him and doing these things I think quite naturally lead to anxiety. Nobody has to say amen, but I gave like a huge amen to myself. The whole walking by faith, it's so hard because you're kind of, you're going down this road and you're saying, Lord, I trust that you're asking me to do this. But all of my you know, all of my wisdom, which is very few, like not much, is telling me it's foolish to do this. I knew that it, like when I started getting convicted about giving and tithing, this was an area that it just didn't make sense. Um, teaching my first Bible study when God was telling me, like I felt he was telling me to go teach a Bible study at the old person's home. It didn't make sense. Coming to Valley Center, it just didn't make sense. And in this walking by faith, it, uh, I, it, it creates anxiety. I love verse seven because it doesn't say, you know, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And if you're one of the few of the weak ones who happens to get a little anxiety, then cast your, your anxiety on him. Peter just assumes that, there is anxiety that if you're fall that there is this sort of concern, worry, anxiety that you'll have it. It's 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 there, and walking by faith sort of puts you out that there's there is a certain amount of risk. And living the way that God calls us to live, it goes against everything that we're comfortable with. So I started looking, you know, anxiety. Normally, I just go straight to like the biblical definition of what it is, but I'm just kind of, I was like, I'm just kind of curious. What, how does the world handle anxiety? And so I Googled it. You know, Google's the master of all information. And so I Googled, informa- I, I Googled anxiety, and, and it struck me that I don't know how many um, search results it was, but like the top 20 or so, it was, it was a bunch of medication. Like, seriously, like there was a bunch of, I don't even know if they all were, but it sort of struck me because you can Google anything and you'll get a bunch of random results. But when there's this huge portion of, of medication, what it tells me is, okay, this is a very real common problem that even, I mean, outside of Christianity, anxiety is something that we humans sort of struggle with. 
uh, I, from Google, I go to my, my top dog of all knowledge, which is Wikipedia. And Wikipedia says this about anxiety. Anxiety is an unpleasant state of inner turmoil, often accompanied by nervous behavior, such as pacing back and forth, somatic complaints, and rumination. It is the subjectively unpleasant feelings of dread over anticipated events, such as the feeling of imminent death. Anxiety is not the same as fear, which is a response to real or perceived immediate threat, whereas anxiety is the expectation of a future threat. Anxiety is a feeling of fear, worry, and uneasiness, usually generalized and unfocused as an overreaction to a situation that is only subjectively seen as menacing. Um, It goes on to other stuff. And I read this and I think, wonderful. I've often said that my my spiritual gift is the gift of worry. And uh, this anxiety, it's not a pleasant thing when you're struggling with it. And so then I'm like, well, what, like where I really should have gone is, well, what does the Bible actually say about anxiety? How is this word used? And it struck me that this word anxiety is only used, I think it was seven times in the whole New Testament. If you'll turn with me over to Mark chapter four and Mark chapter four, verse 18. It's actually the passage we're studying this Wednesday night at Bible study. Um, and Matthew, Mark and Luke there's the parable of, of the sower where the, where the seed goes out and it falls into different environments. This word anxiety is translated here in verses 18 and 19 as, as worry. And so in verse 18, Jesus, he, he'd already given the parable to the group. Then he comes back and his disciples are saying, Jesus, we don't understand what you were talking about. And Jesus said, well, I speak in parables to kind of conceal the meaning, but to you, I'm going to explain it to you. And so he explains the parable of the sower. And as he's explaining it, we come to verse 18. He said, and others are the ones whom the seed was thrown, uh, sown amongst the, the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries, there's the word anxiety, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And in this parable of of the soil, we all know the right answer is that we want our hearts to be the good soil. But when I look at the other three, like the three bad choices, the thorns is the one that always gets me. Overthinking stuff, concerned about the ins and outs, the budget, the what, all of these things, like these worries choke your life out. And basically the word of God in your relationship is basically with God is basically destroyed. So I found that interesting that this is how that word anxiety is used three of the seven times. I think my numbers, it's a very few number, but three of them are in the gospels dealing with this story. Then you can turn with me over to Luke uh, chapter 21. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, so Luke 21, verse 34 through 36. Again, in this section, so 21, 34 through 36, it is used, uh, it's defined as worries of life. So Jesus says, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness 
and the worries of life. So often those, well, those, I don't want to judge you guys, but those went together for me. The worries of life led to drinking. And uh, then the drink just became heavier the next day. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell in the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of, the man, Son of Man. So so here in Luke, this word anxiety is translated again as is sort of the worries of life, that it, that it, it weights down the believers, just like the the seed that was cast amongst the thorn, that the worries were so weighty that the things of God basically were were destroyed. As we work our way back to Peter, you can stop at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, this one struck me as a pastor. I don't necessarily think that all anxiety is necessary. This is anxiety that I was going to say that isn't bad, but I think all anxiety is not really good. So, um, but here, Paul, as he writes, uh, most of chapter 11 or a lot of chapter 11, he's gone through like all of his beatings, his shipwrecks, his being stoned and left for dead. All of these, these terrible things that had happened to him in the flesh. And then in verse 28, he says, apart from such external things, all of these near death environments, he says, there is daily pressure on me of concern. And this word, this concern is the word anxiety, concern for all of the churches. And so you see here, Paul was facing, feeling concerned or anxiety over the responsibility and the weight that was on him concerning the spiritual well-being of all of the churches that he was responsible for. And so now you can go back all the way to 1 Peter chapter 5. And when he says, casting all your anxiety on him, I kind of feel like we should have a good idea of what anxiety is. I'm not going to have everybody raise their hand, but I would feel pretty comfortable that if we said, hey, if you've ever felt anxiety, will you slip your hand up in the air? Like I'm pretty sure that all of us can identify with anxiety. Um, There's real things that we're anxious for. There are other things I get silly stuff, even that I get anxious for. But the deal is, how do we how do we handle this anxiousness? And he says, casting all your anxiety on him, this 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 word casting in one sense, it could be used um, to to throw something like a baseball or um, it was used for Judas when he realized that when he'd betrayed Jesus, that his betrayal actually resulted in Jesus' um, going to be executed. He took the money and he threw it at the priests. It could also be described as, as an idea of a, of a heavy backpack when hiking, um, taking the weight off of your back. For any of you who've done any sort of extended hiking trips, you've got to you know, carried, or if you're in the military and you've done sort of ruck humps where you're basically carrying the thing, there's nothing better than when you're walking along and your back is breaking from carrying the thing. And the leader says, okay, we're going to take five, go ahead and basically take, take a rest, get some water. And you basically lean back, you throw off the backpack. It peels off your back from all of the sweat. And there's just, there's a, a light feeling in, in those moments when you're able to take off this weight 
And I think that this is the picture when he says, cast off your anxieties, cast your anxieties onto him. It reminds me of the story in Pilgrim's Progress. For those of you who've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I highly recommend it. If you guys read like me, I'd, I'd, I'd highly encourage the uh, Pilgrim's Progress for children. It's much easier to follow. Um, <laughs> but if you enjoy Old English, go for it. You know, like I, I, uh, I preferred the kids one. But I took the Old English one just to make it look like I was more well-read than I am. And so here is Christian comes upon the cross. The story reads, He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came upon the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble. And so it continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood a little while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. And it's a be- this beautiful picture of, of that God wants to take our burden from us. If you don't know Christ, he wants to give you to, to release your burden of the condemnation that is due you from your sin. And for those of us who have received this gift and are Christians, that doesn't mean that we can't get overcome with anxiety in the cares of the world. And what he tells us is that he wants us to cast our anxiety, our concerns, our worries, our fears, that he desires us to cast it to him. Why in the world would he ask us to do this? Why in the world would he desire to take on our burdens? Why in the world, as we celebrate communion today, would he go to the cross for us? Why would he do this? Because he cares for you. And this should break your hearts, guys. Like, I, ho- I hope your hearts aren't so calloused that you don't understand the big picture of what God has done for you, how much he loves you, how much he cares for you. He doesn't want us to walk around like we were baptized in lemon juice, like Charles Swindoll says, I, I, that, that he wants to take this burden from us. And if you've never received Christ as your savior, he wants to take the burden of your sin, your shame, everything that's keeping you from relationship with him. This whole idea of taking communion, it's for Christians. If you're not a Christian and you would like to become a Christian, it's very simple. You believe. For those of us who are Christians and are going to participate in communion today, while communion symbolizes a number of things, you can go to 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 33, and there you'll see that it's a time to reflect, to confess your sin, to restore your, um, to, to restore your fellowship with him. It's, it's a time to, to reflect on what he did on the cross, that his body was, was broken for you, that he shed his blood, that we could have participate in this new covenant. We're also told that as often as we take of the Lord's Supper, 
that we would proclaim his death. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, when we're united with him, there will be no more communion because we'll be in true communion with him. And so what we're going to do is when we take communion, I'm going to pray here in a second. And we're going to sort of end with silence. I always like, often the worship team kind of hustles up here and they start playing a song so that we have a song, you know, so we have, you know, the mood music as we take communion. But I think sometimes they get robbed of, you know, having that time to reflect. So um, so we're, when you're ready, what I want to focus on as we take communion, it's a cracker and grape juice, symbolic of his death. But the reason he did this, the reason he did this is because he cares for you. And how do we, what is casting our anxiety at his foot? What, is it, what does this look like? Well, to me, where I struggle with anxiety often, like it seems like the time where it strikes the most is uh, by the time I lay down to go to sleep and I wake up in the morning, that seems to be a window. And I think that we can relieve ourselves of the, the anxiety by casting upon him through prayer, that we can share with him the things that are causing us worry. And as we're sharing with him and confessing and communing with him to say, Lord, I'm really stressed out about this. It could be finances, it could be relationships, it could be like whatever it is. That as we cast it before him, to have it in the mind, Lord, I want to walk with faith. I want to follow after you. I want to humble myself. And the reason I do this is because I know that you care for me. And if you know that God cares for you, that he's working in your life and your greatest problem did not slip through the cracks that he forgot about. To know that in the midst of your concerns, in the midst of your worries, that he cares for you so much that not only did he give his life for you, but that he is continuing to intercede and to work and to, uh, to act on your behalf. And so I'm going to pray. I'll set this up. And when you're ready to come forward and get the elements, you can just come on your own. But I want to have us to have a time just to sit quietly and to spend some time talking with God. And so, Father, we do. We thank you, Lord, um, that you are so good and you're so faithful. Lord, we acknowledge that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And, Father, I confess that so, so often, Lord, um, I get wrapped up in myself. I get wrapped up in my own thinking. And Lord, it's so easily, it's so easy to get caught up in anxiety and burdens and fears. But Lord, we know that you are a good, loving, almighty God. You are the one and only. To know that you care for us changes everything. And so, Lord, as we examine our fears, our anxiety, our worries, I pray, Lord, that you would, Lord, surface them to our minds now, Lord, that we would, in in our minds, that we would be able to sort of um, imagine a backpack or something that we could take all of our anxiety and sort of throw it into the backpack and that we could just chuck that backpack at the foot of your cross. Lord, we thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you are in control. We pray, Lord, that you would 
um, take this burden from us. Father, we are grateful for our relationship that we have with you. We thank you that Christ died for us because you care for us. Father, as we take this communion, we ask, Lord, that you would um, set our our relationship and our, our passion for you, just on, just set it on fire again, Lord, that we would walk freshly with you. We thank you, Lord, for all you're doing in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.